Thanks for listening to The Wild Women Who Write, Kathy Nichols, Kim Connery, Elizabeth Jones, Kat Filer, and Gabby Anderson. Tonight's episode of Wild Women Who Write explores how authors create kick-ass female protagonists. All of the wild women feature main characters in the process of discovering their own strength. Kim Connery's sci-fi romance, Aries Ascending, features heroines we root for as they overcome obstacles to save their planet. Gabby Anderson's South of Happily's Katie Kiss takes a modern approach as her character learns how to be her own heroine. My female protagonist, Kathy Nichols, survived betrayal, loss, and villains out to get them. We're happy to add McKinley Aspen to our discussion on how to develop brave, believable female characters. Kim Conway is going to introduce McKinley before we get started. McKinley Aspen is a writer who lives in the United States. In addition to the normal family shenanigans, McKinley has a busy schedule as chief dog walker to Otis the puppy dog. A graduate of both the University of Chicago and Elmhurst University, McKinley enjoys exploring the world through family road trips, mills featuring Portillo's Beef with Maz, and St. Louis Cardinals baseball. And she managed to score a billboard in Times Square. We're all impressed, McKinley. And I wanted to give you a chance to add any information I skipped, but first, please tell us how you got a billboard for Presidium, Book One, Shadows in the Wind, in Times Square. We want to know how you did that. Well, if I start to dig into that, I'm going to have to tell you more about HGS and the secret undercover operations that occur. So I'm not sure we're there yet. Oh my, okay. That sounds like a secret there. Okay. Well, the very name of your book is intriguing. I've always wondered how you came up with the name Presidium and what it means. Presidium means protection in Latin. And when I was researching the book, I looked to some of the historical fiction writers like Sophie Hanna out of Cambridge, who always looked to lineages in order to get their names. And I thought it was really interesting that it came across that way as Presidium just spoke to me as something that was more of a global word instead of just putting protection on the cover of a book. Yeah, naming things is a very powerful Absolutely. What inspired you to write in this genre? I didn't originally set out to do urban fantasy or even action adventure. What happened was an organic outpouring of a story that ended up being extremely quick paced, very tension filled. And when the editor got it said, oh my gosh, you have an action adventure here. When what I really thought was I was just writing a beautiful little story about a historical (laughs) lineage of families coming together, and it just kind of organically came out that way. And those might be the very best stories. Absolutely. You you tell them, not trying to make them fit a mold. Yes. That they just come out and then they find their own way. Well, the wild women are all about strong women, and we understand that you are a partner in a publishing company. Is that correct? And also tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that. Absolutely. I am a founder of Muse Literary. It's a small, independent, traditional publishing house based in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a partner with my friend of over 30 years, Sarah Cannell, also a published author. And we both had traditional publishing contracts and we walked away from them because we figured out that you can't feed a family on 2% net of royalties. So we created this as an opportunity to give back to the authors. We have uh, between a 30 and a 40% standard traditional contract that we offer. And then for the academics out there, we've had professors come to us who said, you know what, 
can we buy up our royalty like you would pay down points in a mortgage? And we thought, huh, maybe we can. And we did some math. And so we're able to make both parties happy. When we get those kind of things, we can also offer that opportunity. Wow, so you're really thinking outside the box. I love that. Absolutely. And it's a different type of journey, but it's global, it's competitive, same distribution model as Penguin, as Simon & Schuster, and the authors we're bringing in are diamonds in the rough that have been passed over. You're like the wild women of the literary world, the publishing world, right? What I love about that is sometimes I think authors get sort of pegged as, oh, they're the creatives, they don't have business sense. Well, we've all learned you have to have some business sense if you're going to go into the business of writing books. But I absolutely love that you really do have the business. You know the business. And that's very encouraging, I think, to all authors, and especially women who want to take control of what they're doing more, don't have a clue how to do it. So thanks for sharing that. You're very welcome. A recurring theme with our own Wild Women, Kathy Nichols' book, The Unreliables, and I believe this is absolutely true, is that fiction can often reveal more about the writer than nonfiction even. And there's certainly more of a freedom while moving around in a fictional realm. Do you think there is a little of you in Presidium's Catherine Beck? I think there is absolutely a little of me in her love of grilled cheese. (laughs) Because I love grilled cheese and anyone who knows me personally would say, well gosh, if you're looking for grilled cheese and you're in Topeka, Patty could tell you where that is. Call Patty. Little sprinkle of myself. We need to add that somehow to our pages. Uh, advice on finding the best grilled cheese sandwiches by. It's important. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and yes, I'm going to work on that. I know with my character, this is kind of funny. We talk about revealing things about yourself. <laughs> One of the reviews or I actually got a a nice recognition but they said something like um, insanity the line between sanity and insanity blurs in the unreliables and it's because I have my one of my characters is the author and one of her characters starts talking to her and I thought what are they talking about that's not police good crazy I thought everybody's characters talked to them I want to ask you that but I'm afraid if you say no then there are lots of repercussions for me. But do your characters just come to you and demand things or talk to you? I know a good therapist. He's <laughs> a lovely man. I know him too. Absolutely. I've had that over and over happen to me. Um, so much so that I had to split up book one into books one and two. That's interesting because uh, I wrote, an, originally I wrote a book called The Sometime Sister. Had It was a standalone. But I promise you, the characters just kept saying, well, we're not really done with you. Exactly. So get back to it. So I have a, a new one, uh, The Substitute Sister, coming out in June. And you have something coming out very soon, correct? I do. Book two is coming out in July. And it's called Koji Tatio, another Latin word. It means reflection. And then book three will be in July of 2024. And the trilogy will be complete, or we'll see what the characters have to say. <laughs> Yes, they may say, trilogy, schnilogy, keep going. Exactly. So, would you like to tell us a little bit about um, Shadows in the Wind? I'm really bad about summarizing things. I keep giving away the ending, but I know you won't do that in your book. So, tell us a little bit about it. I can try. I can tell you that my elevator pitch goes a little like this. It's a classic cocktail of action-adventure with a dash of empowerment and a dollop of the supernatural. 
And by then, people usually say, hmm, and pick up the cover. And then they start to turn the book over and look at the back. And at the end of the day, it's a story of families that are historically from the angels. So it's my, my premise in the book is that there's a lineage from Archangel Michael, there's a lineage from Archangel Raphael. Those people are kind of like the shadows that walk amongst us and they bring hope and keep hope in our world. They keep it alive. So just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I love that. I need you to write an elevator pitch for me. <laughs> but I, and also we, we started out with creating cocktails uh, on our webpage that our, our uh, characters, protagonists, yeah, yeah. might drink. And uh, I, I gotta remember yours. We need to translate that into liquors, <laughs> a dollop of. So what kind of research did you have to do to write this book, I or did, did you? I did tons of research once I had the bones together. And the research I really did was just to make sure that how I was describing things were accurate for today's world because things that I remember from different time periods in my life may have shifted or changed. So it was a matter of making sure that the street I remembered in a certain way was still kind of that way. Stuff like that, easy stuff. Okay, because you were talking about Archangel and everything, so biblically... Oh, biblically, that, that's that's a slam dunk. Yeah. It's so oh, really? fun to read about the Archangels. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to pick up a book because they're pretty darn fascinating. But other than that, the research was more, it was more specific geographically to where they traveled and what they did and making sure that their talents were aligned with something not too whimsical, not too light, but not too scary, just kind of constant. That was one of the things that I loved most about Presidium was feeling like I was traveling because I love a book where I feel like I can travel, you know, without leaving my couch, you know, and you did such a good job describing, you know, their travels. And I felt like I was just going right along with them. Oh, honey, really, thank really you. Really well done. That is a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm looking at and thinking about the book and the question that comes out is, will Catherine be able to conquer what appear to be insurmountable odds so that she can just survive? So I, there's an urgency I think, throughout Absolutely. the book as well, that keeps it moving along. And I know that while the Wild Women, we love our strong characters. We also have to put obstacles in their way, and sometimes it's the very obstacles in their way that help them realize they can be strong. I know with Gabby's South of Happily, her main character, Katie Kiss, who is an absolute hoot, she just doesn't realize that she's strong. And Gabby says she isn't strong in the beginning, but I see strength there that, once again, I think we're revealing things about ourselves in our writing. I see strength there that I know she's going to build on. Tell us about Katie. We love Katie. Well, Katie comes from a very traditional Hungarian family. Her parents are Hungarian immigrants, and so she's a first-generation American, and so she's very much stuck between these two worlds where she doesn't fit anywhere. So she's not, she's Hungarian, but she's not really Hungarian. I mean, she couldn't make it, you know, on the streets over there. She's American, but she's not really American because her parents are kind of strange. And so all her life, she has this sort of internal fight about, you know, who am I and where do I belong? And because of that, she, she makes a lot of mistakes in her life. And that's sort of how the book is, is that she's in a horrible marriage and she has to get out of the marriage and goes to therapy and I'm married to a therapist 
So for me, it was very important to show what good therapy looks like. And as avoidant as Katie is, and she's extremely avoidant, she does come along and she does move along in the plot and understand how therapy can help. And I think she does get, she gets stronger in the end. But I'd like to say, you know, the book is six weeks. It's a, it's a six week time frame, And, you know, you don't get better in six weeks, which is why I'm writing the sequel. <laughs> Your character wouldn't leave you alone either. No. And I'm, I'm looking at or thinking about Catherine in this. She has um, a situation with her heritage. She's, I know you don't want to tell us too much about that, but there's a mystery or a mysterious event about concerning her father. So in a very different kind of way, she's also looking at her heritage and family connections. None of that's really important. And you received an award uh, in recognition of how well you did with writing something that could be an intergenerational book for everyone. So tell us about that. Yes, this book has received multiple awards from many very generous people who've loved the book. But one of the greatest ones was the Illumination Award, and it's meant to, um, because it's evergreen is the reason they give gave it to Presidium. And I think it's really terrific because book one is a light start for our pro tag, but as we get into book two, I think the readers are going to see the challenges are 10x, and she's really going to come through or she's not. There's going to be a definitive choice there in the pathway, and I'm hoping it'll keep the reader along for the entire ride. So families could read this book together, which I think is super cool. Absolutely. And, and what would be the lowest or minimum age that you think kids I, I would say 16, 16 or 18 probably. Okay. Because I almost thought if you had a really uh, precocious reader, but the themes are Absolutely. Mature. They, they tackle some mature themes in there. Yes. Kim has a wonderful heroine in her first book in her series. I'm going to let her talk about that. But what I love about it is she's not going to be the only kick-ass female protagonist in the series. So, Kim, tell us about Stealing Aries and more. Well, Stealing Aries was my, my first published book. And as I was reading Presidium, I noticed, at least in the beginning, Catherine trying to figure out how her love interests fit into her new life compared to the one you know, she once knew and she's in this, this new life and how does, how does he fit in? And when your world is suddenly turned on its ear, things that used to neatly fit don't anymore. And that certainly happened when Harlow Hansen, who used to be the Robin Hood of, of the Mars colonies, you know, she was, she was their, their girl. She was yeah. stealing wallets off of bureaucrats that showed up in the colonies and sneaking aboard the Aries to strip the gold wiring from the, from the ship. And, when she suddenly goes to work on the Aries, you know, who is she anymore? You know, they're like, are you, are you still with us? You know, are you still our girl? You know, but she's with the prince and well, have you turned your back on us? And, but in, in Presidium, I noticed um, Catherine struggling to see how, you know, her old relationship fits into her new life. And then there's a twist later with that. So yeah, I saw the, you know, how that parallels. Later, I have the sequel to Stealing Aries coming out called Losing Aries in October. But yeah, could you speak a little bit about Catherine's relationship? And, and I noticed that and I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. She um, has a lot of struggles because she doesn't really find herself until about halfway through the book. But just when the reader thinks she's found herself, there's yet another twist. What I like to think she gets along the way with the journey is the realization that 
your family doesn't have to be blood. You don't have to be related to the people who you call family. Because at the end of the day, the team becomes family. And she, she has that realization, and that's a great realization that people sometimes wait their whole life to realize. So that was definitely a win. Even though she has more challenges, forthcoming, I think that was a big one. And you get that lovely ensemble cast. Oh, absolutely. Which is something I wanted as well on board the Starship, on board the Aries, was that ensemble cast where you have this, this tight-knit group that become like found family, like, yes. like in Presidium. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. That's it's hard I'm... though. Have you ever noticed when you're writing those characters that they'll haunt you? Yes. At night, indeed. All of a sudden, <laughs> I'll see someone who resembles what I'm thinking the character might look like, and then I'll just be completely distracted for three hours and be forced to sit down and rewrite whatever that chapter is, or at least get up out of bed and make a little note. Oh about yeah, it. so get something up out of bed. exactly. <laughs> I love this idea of the family coming through, and that it's not just blood relations and. Several of my books, family is a really crucial part of the theme. Yeah. Uh, I have a, I have two sisters. The older one adores the younger one, and then the younger one runs off with the older one's fiance, and there we go. So that even sometimes, because family is blood, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the kind of family you'd hoped for. But in the books and the struggles that people have, they have to come to terms with that real family and how it relates to their chosen family and and how the both having both enriches everything which i think is part of why your book is so well received for young readers middle readers and a mature readers we'll say one thing i was curious about what has been the most unexpected or coolest thing that has happened to you since your book debut Oh my goodness, I have two or three. May I mention them all? Please. The first one has to be walking into the Barnes & Noble locally here with my son to get a book for him to go back to, to college. And I started weeping and shaking and had to be physically sat down on the floor. And he said, Mom, you're embarrassing me. And I said, you don't understand. That's my book. It's right there, like center on the shelf. It was face out. There was three, and a gentleman had just picked one up, and I lost my mind. But it was lovely, and my poor son, he, he'll never forgive me for that. He'll get over But that was a cool thing for me. I also loved that I get to run into people who have just read it randomly. I had the opportunity to do a speaking and reading engagement at the Strand in New York City. I was so honored that I was in the old book room, the antique room up at the top where so many famous people had been and there were twinkle lights and just a beautiful group of people and they were just kind of casually mulling around discussing my characters you know it was alive in the room that to me was just a beautiful thing because of my goal with this book ladies was simply if it touches one soul i'm going to be happy and at that moment i knew i just knew it nothing else mattered but then, of course, the Times Square billboard was really cool. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. Because <laughs> then you get the opportunity to touch lots of people. Yes. Maybe superficially at first. Yes. But if they're tempted to dig in, then even more for your dream. Absolutely. I do have a fourth one that just happened that I'd like to share. We were just on NBC all last week. 
my book was part of the Mother's Day swag that went out to all the people who are new mothers. They do it every year. It's just like the book, the bags they give for the Oscars or the Tonys. And Presidium was in that book, so it went to all the new moms, like Kaylee Cuoco and all, all the people who just have had babies. And it was part of that Mother's Day swag. And I was just honored that they picked it. Oh, yeah. I just thought, well, somebody's getting it. Like, somebody understands that it's relevant to multi-generations. So that was really nice. Yeah, I love that. That is, Those are some very cool things. Yeah. Now, let's talk about some not-as-cool things. <laughs> Um, how do you keep your spirits up when you've got all this editing to do? And with me, I'll be editing, and what I really want to be doing is working on the, the next project. Because, and I'm like, no, you have to finish this. It has to be done. And then I'm pretty good at not, well, not really looking all the time at my reviews. But when you get one that is just so annoyingly, inaccurately negative, how do you handle that? Well, let's start with the editing part. I'm terrible at that. I am not good. But I have a dog, his name is Otis. He's two years old and he was a rescue. And Otis gets a lot of extra walking and playtime when I need that distraction. He also does random book reviews. <laughs> so people will send me a book and say, can Otis review it? And so he will give four paws or three paws or oh, whatever he's thinking, but just something to kind of distract me out of the moment. Because sometimes you just get lost in the weeds. And it's so tedious. The, yes. The writing, it's fun most of the time. but Or the know. Oxford comma. I don't know if you all have run into that. Yes. Do you or don't you? I just don't even worry about, like, let's just get the basic bones done, and then we'll worry about the Oxford comma. Exactly. But other than that, bad reviews, you know, Carol Burnett says that your first bad review means you've made it. <laughs> well, Carol Burnett, I'm going to take that advice oh, like over it. anything negative anybody has to say. So I try really not to look at that kind of stuff because I just can, you know, it's it's not worthwhile. Carol Burnett is kind of our patron saint because when we're doing <laughs> Zoom interviews, uh, Gabby will tug on her ear to let us know time is running short. And so oh, we see, all do a little funny. homage. Yeah, we do a little homage to Carol Burnett. Now, you chose a small independent publisher first. And yes. why did you do that instead of trying for the Big Five or self-publishing? I had an offer from the Big Five. It was going to be five years till the book was brought to market. And from everything everyone had told me, who people I know in the industry who have worked with agents, people who have bigger names than myself, they said, once you do that, realize you're relinquishing a lot of your story. They have the right to edit or change it. You're not going to see those edits. Your agent's probably going to approve them. You really only get brought in monthly for meetings. Additionally to that, they'll make your cover. They'll pick, you know, whatever is going on. Do you want to give that up for X percent? As I thought about it, I thought, well, gosh, I'm honored. Thank you for thinking of me. I have the greatest agent who I still have a strong relationship with from the Atlanta Writers Club. I met her years ago. And... She stood by me and I talked her through it and she said, you know what, you're right. This is better than this. This is better than what you're going to get in the end. And it didn't matter what the imprint was. What mattered was getting my voice into the world. So that's how I made that decision. But it's not for the faint of heart. Well, and I think that's a really important insight for younger writers or newer writers who are really thinking that the agent is the best way to go and I remember I had an agent for a little while and when I got her I thought I'm done you know it's gonna be at the time Oprah had a book club that's how long ago it was 
And I was like, Oprah's book club, look out, I'm coming on. And then she couldn't sell it. You know, so it, we parted amicably, but I thought, you know, I'm gonna do whatever I can to get this book out as soon as I can. I, the self-publishing thing is overwhelming to me. I take my hat off to people who really do a good job with self-publishing and careful with the edits and the whole thing because it's, to me, overwhelming. So I was thrilled to find an independent uh, publisher as well. I think that's a, I think people should be aware that there are many different ways to get their book out there. Absolutely. And that is what's important, I think. So, McKinley, I want you to repeat your title. I want you to tell us where we can get the book, and I want you to tell us uh, the name of the next book, where it's coming out. But before we get into the details about your current novel, your upcoming novel, Elizabeth has a little something different to add. Yeah, I like to bring in the history of some of our genres, people that were writing in, you know, all the things that we love to read now, and where did, what was the beginning? What was the, who were the predecessors? So for all of us, we've got Kathy with crime, and you with urban fantasy, Kim sci-fi, Gabby's women's lit. I'm literary, and I raise my pinky when I say that. <laughs> and you know, it was women's magazines in particular that gave a readership to some of the early people writing, like say, you know, we started out with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for instance, and so that kind of makes the rounds. And they find out, oh, people like to read stories like this. And so women's magazines, you know, starting with Red Book in 1903, you know, it bumped up the readership from pulp fiction to kind of a more glossy thing. And, you know, it might not have been considered literature by the starched and corseted standard bearers of taste at the time, but they loved reading these stories. And so they were publishing things like uh, Jack London, Edith Wharton, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Agatha Christie, F. Scott Fitzgerald. All of these people owe some of their success to women's magazines and women readers in particular. So whenever you're reading something in the genre that you really like, we can all trace our things back to people who took a chance on all of these writers and found that the best readership were women. So we can all be proud of that lineage that we all share. Are you saying there was a Pulp Fiction before the movie? <laughs> can you believe? And I started this what research is, What is Pulp Fiction? my daughter asked me, what is Pulp Fiction? And so it's just the quality of the pulpy paper. And so it was paper like... Back that makes paper. sense. Yeah, and so it was like stories that were considered trashy, but, you know, people loved them. And so... This, these were like the beginning stages. Of I kind of want to now just say that my genre is pulp fiction, just to see what well, happens. We'll get, I know, I mean, I get it, but... We'll get John Travolta <laughs> and Samuel L. Yeah. Jackson here. Yeah, okay. Well, and if you know anything about the wild women, you know that we're not really the corseted group. I don't even like to wear a bra. <laughs> but, but public, general public demands that I do so. But I think that and that's exciting to be thinking about our place in this wonderful evolution of different types of writing and different genres. And that's why we're so happy to have you with us today. So remind us again, title of your book now, what's coming out and what's next for you? The current title is Presidium. It's Shadows in the Wind, book one, and it's currently available everywhere books are sold, Whoa. internationally. 
So wherever you want to go buy a book, online or in a store. Next book is Koji Tatio. That's book two. It comes out July 7th. And book three will come out the following July. So July, July, and July. That is so exciting. And once again, we thank McKinley Aspen for joining us tonight. Check out her books and check out the wild women as we get even wilder. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.